spirit, your whispering words to us. And we thank you for that. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, Psalm 14, 2-3. By the way, we are in this uh, sermon series called Ruin to Renovation. Uh, a lot of the principles are coming out of Dallas Willard's book, uh, Renovation of the Heart, if you want to read along with that. Um, we do also have some binders back there in the back you can get and download the question sheets every week for, for that and become sort of use it as a quiet time for yourself. Uh, we're going through this stuff in our community groups as well. If you're not a part of a community group, we'd love to have you uh, in those rooms and talking through things with people. But uh, let's begin with Psalm 14 today. Uh, Verses 2 through 3, it says, The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. (laughs) It's a little bit of a downer, right? Now, realize that Psalms are sort of this poetic way of speaking that are intense sometimes, but it's speaking a truth to us. Romans 3.23 kind of says the same thing in one line, right? It's a one-liner. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, uh, we said last week, if you remember, that there is a, there's a sense in modern society or modern culture or in our worldview, our secular worldview, that there's no such thing as a sinful human nature, Right? That sin, this concept of sin, is an archaic construct uh, made up by those in the past who, which simply had not progressed to the point at which humankind finds itself now. Right? And there's an arrogance in that, right? And I think that's because mistakenly we think in terms of only intelligence a lot of times. We value high intelligence, especially here on the main line, Right? We value intelligence, not taking into account all aspects of human nature, right? Of all aspects of the self, which we talked about last week, these six aspects. And I'd be hard-pressed to to quote them all right now. But it's like society and body and thought and I forget all the rest. But anyway, um, soul. That was one of them. Things like that. So we we don't take into account all aspects of self. We think that we're smarter now. This modern man, postmodern man, actually. But, you know, resurrect Plato or Socrates and stand them next to our most, you know, accomplished philosopher of the day or our most accomplished politician of the day, because uh, Plato was a politician, right? Uh, stand them next to the, one of those people and they would pale in comparison. Plato and Socrates and Paul, the Apostle Paul, were smart, smart, smart people, right? Human intelligence isn't just about the amount or the kind of knowledge in a brain. It's the ability to acquire and apply knowledge and skill, the the ability to think, the ability to employ logic and to employ reason. And human nature is more comprehensive than just intelligence, right? My voice is going, by the way. Uh, Human nature isn't progressive without God's grace. If anything, it's regressive, right? We're going backwards in some ways. We're becoming more base. Wisdom isn't dictated by how much math 
or chemistry you know. Rather, in how I understand human nature and how I navigate relationships and how I am able to navigate life, right? Humankind has not progressed in becoming better internally. We haven't. And we won't. We never will without divine intervention. That's what the scriptures teach. We may have more gadgets right now, right? We may have better teeth than we did 100 years ago. My wife and I were talking about that. She's always like, I wish I lived 100 years ago. I'm like, yeah, but you wouldn't have any teeth. (laughs) Right? (laughs) That sucks. Right? Everybody wants teeth. Like, you don't want toothaches and stuff. All right? You know, that's a good thing. I mean, it's a good thing to have better teeth. Right? We have more gadget, but it's not a progression of our human nature, of the inner self. It's not. Better teeth and more gadgets. It's just more stuff. And honestly, more stuff, more technology actually comes with more headache. Technology was, is, is there, we think, to make life easier, but it actually adds more and more and more and more to life. I'm going backpacking 500 miles this summer. I am so excited to not have anyone call me while I'm out in the God's green earth. Life is going to be a lot easier. Right, And this is, see, all this is why love songs and great literature and music and art are all timeless. They are timeless. I just heard this song. I forget the name of the song. They redid, and it was like a 70s song. It's timeless, right? Because human nature doesn't change. Human nature doesn't change. It's always the same from the very beginning until now. And this is why poverty and racism and all the other plagues of humankind which originate internally from the human heart won't go away until Jesus comes back. These things might thrive more readily under certain conditions, certain times in history, certain places, they might thrive like more readily in a certain place with the right thing, but they won't fully go away just by societal pressure or just by better education or just by better laws. They won't. They won't. And that is not the hope that we should be going for. See, the mature Christian understands this about themselves and about everybody else in the world, and they embrace this already ruined human soul. And they don't get upset about that. Our flawed human nature with inherent sin at its core. They understand that. They embrace it. They're not afraid to look into that truth, right? And own it and begin their start from there. Because any serious look at Christian spiritual formation must begin, which is what this whole series is about, but any serious look at Christian spiritual formation must begin from the dark truth that the human condition is at its core corrupt. And people aren't saying that these days. And even in a lot of Christian circles, they're not saying it. It is, in Christian theological terms, fallen. We are fallen people, right? And that is that we are totally and absolutely fallen away from God in all ways. 
From the very beginning, from the very, very beginning of history, when Adam and Eve were sent out of the Garden of Eden, and from the very beginning of your life, when you first were born, when you first came out of your mom's womb. By the way, I skipped out like this. Mom, I'm here. <laughs> it was her nightmare began that day. No, I'm just kidding. That's when it started, right? You couldn't, you you were born into it. You were born into sin. We call it original sin. And at the same time, from the point of birth until you're dead, right, everybody is being formed spiritually. Christian and non-Christian alike. We've said this in the past weeks. Each becoming a certain type of a person. By our choices, by how we're living our life, by the way that we go in our dire- whatever direction we take. And what type of person is the question? That's the question that we wrestle with in, in these rooms. These church rooms. The Florida shooter chose, listen to that language, he chose a certain route of spiritual formation. He chose it. He's responsible for it. He, his was a dark choice, right? His, his, his choice led to certain beliefs and certain values. He did not value human life because of the choices that he made, because of his worldview, his secular worldview that he followed after. And that led to horrific action. He chose that route. Spiritual formation is like an education. It's good or bad. Right? And it's as if at the moment of our salvation, Jesus picks us up and he moves us to the best school district with the best teachers and the best resources and the best, uh, you know, facilities and, and, the, and, and, and the Bible as our textbook in school. Right? It's a district of peace. It's a safe place. It's a place where learning and growth happen constantly, that we're on the upward trajectory, becoming more and more like Jesus all the, all the time. But although in the very beginning of that time there at this new place for a time, we're always looking over our shoulder because the school that we came from had metal detectors at the entrance and gangs running the hallway. We have to get used to this peace. We have to get used to the life of Jesus and the kingdom life that we've been given. We have to grow into it and appreciate it and love it and share it with others. C.S. Lewis said that uh, humans were either immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Think about that. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Without Jesus, we're the former. Psalm 14, Romans 3.23, right? Without Jesus, we are immortal horrors. But with Jesus, we are the latter. We are 2 Corinthians 5.17. We are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. We've been changed. We've been bought with a price. And we're invited into ent- to enter into that splendor with Jesus to become more and more splendiferous every day of our lives. I did use that word. You've never met anybody that actually used the word splendiferous in a sentence, and I just did it. I'm proud of myself. Yeah, amen. It's good to, it's good to boost your vocabulary, right? And here's the weird thing, right? Here's the weird thing. 
is that when God created everything else, Genesis chapters 1 through 3, when God created everything else out there, he said it was good. Trees and birds and grass and whatever, right? (laughs) Banana plants or whatever it is. Everything was good. It was good. It's a good sermon. It must be a great sermon. They're playing the bells for me. But they just started doing this, and it's, like, so distracting. Last week, I didn't say anything, but I heard it. Believe me. And other people came to me and said, did you hear the bells during the sermon last week? Yes, I did. So God, in the beginning, right, everything was good. He created it, and he said, everything is good. But when he got to us, when he got to humankind, when he got to Ivory Bishop, or when he got to Vinny or Mary or, or, or Abby, I said your name. Or, or Abby, or little Casper right there, right? And he created that. He created it, all of us, every single one of us, man, woman, and child, in his image. And he deemed it very good. It's the only thing he said was very good. You're very good. Right? Human beings are at a level far and above all other creation, according to the scriptures. And old Christian writers used to say that our majesty's been veiled to us, otherwise we would live in vanity, right? We would be very vain people. And maybe that's true. Maybe that is true. Gosh, that's got to stop soon, right? <laughs> ding, ding, ding. I have to talk to Ian about that. Father Ian. Um, but it's precisely this fact, it's precisely this fact, the illustriousness of humankind, which makes our fallenness. Such a tragedy, right? Such a tragedy. If we could illustrate it like this, we might say that it's the difference of our addict cousin who lives on the streets of Philly and he shoots up heroin every day. And when he's arrested, we don't think anything of it because it's what we expect of him. He's always doing that kind of thing. He's almost insignificant to us anymore since his sin doesn't really surprise us, right? But when Bill Cosby was first accused of sexual misconduct and at such gross levels, we were appalled. We were appalled. I was. When it first came out, everybody thought, no, not Bill. They've got to be gold diggers. Not Bill. He was so pure. Dave Chappelle said Bill's uh, moral... Moral failure was like finding out milk, one of the most wholesome things that he grew up drinking and loving and that was so good for you that was found to be bad for you. Now, Dave Chappelle said this in much more colorful ways than I can say on a Sunday morning, as Dave Chappelle will do. But you get the point, right? Great comedian. That guy is a riot. But he is trashy sometimes. But the point is, Cosby was significant for all of us. He was a good guy. He was significant for all of us. He was a seemingly strong, morally upright, successful black man. He was somebody that we all enjoyed looking up to. We loved him. And his fall from grace made such a loud thud in all of our collective consciousness. He fell hard, hard. That's humankind. Humankind is significant. Significant. We're not a drug addict expected to fail. We are Bill Cosby, right? 
a prominent, wholesome, moral leader who has done something atrocious and fallen from grace altogether. If we were on the same level as slugs and chipmunks, our fallenness wouldn't be as tragic. But it is. It is tragic since we're created in the image of God. We are created in His image. We are very good. Very, very good. And all the garbage which plagues our sinful, uh, which plagues our, uh, our lives, everything about us as a result of our fallen nature, our sin. Every societal ill can be traced back to that sin. Everything that plagues us can be traced back to our sin. Even uh, weather patterns can be traced to human sin. But as tragic as our sinful condition is, these things are also the reasons why God would go to such lengths to save you and me. Right? To sacrifice himself on a cross, to bleed out, to suffocate. Did you know that's how you die on the cross? Is you suffocate, and that's why they break people's legs, so that they can't hold themselves up, and then they suffocate. They didn't have to break Jesus' legs, because he was already dead. To sacrifice himself on a cross. We are, in the eyes of God, immensely worth saving. You are immensely worth saving. Seth, you are immensely worth saving. Steph is immensely worth saving. Olga is immensely worth saving. We are deserving of death in our sinful nature. But we are worthy of God's grace all at the same time. I... Remember that we are deserving of death in our sinful nature, but we are worthy of God's grace all at the same time. Our sin doesn't make us insignificant. It doesn't make us valueless in God's sight. Rather, it just makes us lost. It makes us needy, right? And here's the difficulty in conversation with non-Christians, people that don't own Christ. Even in our lostness, our human depravity, Even in our most base nature as we are, the human being is still capable of acts sublime. Of expressing deep love and commitment in relationship with others. Of writing and singing and performing extremely moving, profound works of art. Of doing good for others that no other creature on the face of the planet can do of being heroic. Our baseness is easily masked with our residual godlikeness. Our baseness is masked easily with our residual godlikeness. So for those out there who don't want to acknowledge the true horror, which is the human condition, they will simply choose to be distracted or to look away. Because humankind can do resplendent, majestic majestic things that we can do such great things. So to them, it must only be those few really bad people like the Florida shooter and, and not the whole of us, everyone, which is rotten at the core. They're unwilling to acknowledge there's a very twisted thing at the core of us all. 
And therefore, they run the risk of missing God's call upon the hearts. You can't, you can't even get to that conversation. And all of this is the reason why God says in Isaiah 64, 6, he says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Mother Teresa, no matter how much good she did, was on the same level with Hitler. Right? We were all on the same playing field. It's not about our perfect good record, our good deeds, as we said last week. God didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people, spiritually dead people, alive. That's what he came for. That's why Jesus died on the cross. And sin, from the very beginning, has has shot us dead. And Jesus is the only one that can remove the arrow, remove the bullet, Remember from past sermons from Ephesians and from uh, Romans and from many other places in Scripture, it tells us that we are spiritually dead without Christ, that we are like the true zombie race until we meet Jesus. Morality is not the purpose of Jesus' coming. Let me say that twice. Morality is not the purpose of Jesus' coming. It's the byproduct of life with Jesus. Given his heart's good, and we begin to emulate his heart over time after we come into a relationship with him. God is good. God is holy good. God is love. And God could be no other, no, no other thing but good and but, but love. And but holiness. And pure. And we begin to emulate that. So it doesn't matter how nice somebody is. Or how well-adjusted to life they seem to be. How moral or immoral they are. Without Jesus, we're all lost. That's the message of the gospel. We are spiritually dead. That's the only starting point to true spiritual formation. You have to acknowledge that. And from that, we grow to emulate God's goodness in Christ. But... The problem is that sin's not part of the conversation as a reason for the failures of people in any way these days. It's not part of the conversation. As a matter of fact, the only true sin is to talk about sin in our society. The only naturally logical or natural logical recourse to human evil in the world right now is to cut out of, uh, when God is cut out of the conversation is to label that behavior as mental illness. You'll notice that's going to become more and more prevalent. It's the only excuse that we have when we are faced with such evil in a person at all. They got to be mentally ill. Be it from the cheating spouse to a schoolyard shooting. We can't fathom such levels of evil coming from humankind from which we expect such great things. So we take choice and responsibility out of the hands of everybody. Let me say that again. We can't fathom evil coming from humankind because we expect them to be great. So we take choice 
and responsibility out of the hands of everybody. And we say that anything aberrant is simply deemed as mentally ill. We've taken the concept of personal choice out of the equation, and what a satanic lie that is. People aren't held accountable for choices. They're simply regarded as those who can't help themselves. Since they're made that way. Whatever they're made that way, right? They're even looking for a murderer gene now to make us, oh, well, he's a murderer. What are we going to do in the future? Look for that gene when kids are born and then throw them out? Going back to old Roman society, aren't we? What goes around comes around. I don't even know where I am now. <laughs> and in our thinking, you know, everybody like no choice, no responsibility. In our thinking, everyone else is just made differently than that aberrant person. They're just an anomaly. But we're all okay. Right? So we have a society now which points to a finger at the only, the most horrific and it claims mental instability. And then we're forced to create laws to control everyone's behavior since they're hiding among us, right? And there's no way to identify them other than their behavior. And that is only after everybody's hurt. Now, I'm not making any political statements, by the way. I'm driving us towards the gospel. Remember that. Do not... Go whispering to everybody, well, he's advocating for he's I'm not saying any of that. But that's our only answer. That's the problem, is that's our only answer. And it's not freedom, and it's unable to solve the problems. It really is. Enact laws to control racism, but the racist is still a racist internally. The judge who incarcerates murderers goes home at night and assassinates his wife's heart slowly over time with murderous words because he is a murderous man in his heart. Without the killing off of sin, the total and absolute killing off of sin and the rebirth of the soul, sin simply goes underground when we attack it only to resurface in other areas of life later. No law can control that. No law can control that. Dallas Willard rightly says, wisely says, choices where sin dwells. Choices where sin dwells. Now, no matter what my unique proclivities are, my desires, what I choose to do, what I like to do, what my unique proclivities are, I choose to sin when I choose to sin. It's no one's fault but my own. Nobody's fault but my own. Remember, in past sermons, we've said that we've trusted in education and science and technology, thinking that those three gods are going to save us in this society, but they cannot address the inner human heart. They cannot. They cannot address our, our deep, depraved, needy state. Modern thought is like a farmer who plants crops, but he denies the existence of weeds and and insects which destroy the work of his hands. So all he can think to do is to pour on more fertilizer, which doesn't help, and it only ends up poisoning the people that eat his food. We have to accept 
and come to grips with the base problem and our need. Sin, our desperate need for God, and, to, and our need to be transformed into the, his likeness because his is a kingdom of peace. His is a place, a kingdom, where racism doesn't exist. Where aberrant, destructive, sexual pornography doesn't exist. When Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, who can understand it? I'm picking out all the fun verses this morning, right? I have to admit, he's talking about me. He's talking about my heart. He's not just talking about all those others out there whom I don't like or agree with or I've deemed mentally unstable. Paul's statement puts us all in the same crab bucket that we're all trying to get out of and pulling each other down with. Acknowledging that fact, owning my original sin, my deep depravity, owning that fact brings with it a freedom and a humility and an understanding of not only ourselves, but also for all the people around us. Why they do what they do. Why they can't seem to control themselves. And it creates not only a desire for me to know God more fully myself, but also a compassion for my neighbor. Even if I don't like my neighbor. And we're back to Luke 10 which we've been looking at for the past two weeks. We love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. But we can't do that without understanding our own depravity. See where I'm going with all this? And if the sinful nature of humankind is so tragic due to our place in creation with God, then sin in the church is that much more horrific than in other places, isn't it? You ever wonder why people get so upset or so mad at church folks than they do in other, with others in the issues of moral failure? It's because it is more tragic in the church when we fall again. We've got to know, you've got to understand that. If I cheat on my wife, it has more weight than does the guy out there on the street that's just sitting at the bus stop who's not a Christian, because he hasn't proclaimed any of this. I have. I proclaim to God who loves me and changes me and all that stuff, and then I do this. It does mean something, especially when we try to cover up. I joked last week or the week before about, you know, at least trying to cover up your sin. What I mean by that is that, yeah, we got to understand this is deep, right? I don't want us to cover it up. I want us to be have integrity about it. I want us to reveal... Um, our integrity by walking this out well and openly. Sin undermines Christians from living as God's own people out of God's own heart. Sin undermines Christians from living as God's own people out of God's own heart. And this is why it's so perplexing for Christians to think that they can solve all societal ills with the voting booth rather than with the Jesus applied to people's hearts. This is a huge problem for us right now that we really have to think about. Let me say this. Evangelism is always the answer. 
Let's say that with me. Evangelism is always the answer. He didn't say it loud enough. Let's say it again. Evangelism is always the answer. What do I mean by that? I mean that every single day of my life, even though I'm a Christian, I have to preach the gospel to myself. And I have to preach it to other people. Because I know that only Jesus changing their hearts is going to change their lives. And it's going to change society. Evangelism is always the answer. Always. And this is why we don't come to church to get better ourselves or to gain more self-esteem or get some religion in us or, or to be more spiritual or more morally upright people. Boosting self-esteem not only breeds self-deception, but it eventually breeds frustration since the root of the problem still exists. We're not here for light reasons. We come to church because we desperately need Jesus, and without him, we are tragically lost. Tragically. And we don't just need him once and done. We, he's not fire insurance for any of us. Don't, we need him every single day of our lives as we work out this salvation, as Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 says, with fear and trembling. In other words, you take it seriously. Denial of our condition and need of Jesus stands in our way. In fact, without denial, I believe that people would be dropping off left and right from suicidal tendencies. I think, like we looked at uh, David Foster Wallace a few weeks back, I think David Foster Wallace saw the depravity of humankind, and he did not have an answer for it. And that was so depressing to him that he took his life. That's what I believe. I can't say that I'm right about that, but that's, that's what I believe. About he, was, he was a deep guy. He thought about these things, right? Because to look at our darkness of our own hearts without gospel hope is absolutely despairing, isn't it? It really is. I felt that when I first came to Christ. If I didn't have the the hope of the gospel, I don't know where I would be right now. Yet still, in, in our denial, people may regard this kind of look at ourselves as masochistic. Right? To admit that we're this far gone they may think that that is counterproductive to human growth and betterment. Oh, well, you don't think of yourself that way. It's just simply too negative. So they contrive ways. They have to contrive ways to deal with the reality of it all. So their twisted hearts make up untruths to live by. Romans chapter 1, 21 through 23. You can read that later. But our argument is this. That if you want to reuse the poison glass, if you want to reuse the life, the soul, then you must empty out all the contents of it and wash the inner cup. To only pour out 80% or 90% or 99% and leave any of the contaminant in the bottom of the glass is only to continually poison yourself over and over and over again. You can't take part of Jesus and leave other parts of Jesus out. You got to give yourself totally to him. Christians must understand themselves first. Self-awareness in Christ. Then 
They've got to be willing to look at the fool, look the fool throwing all of their weight behind the words of God, speaking against the groupthink, which is so prevalent today that we're just good and we only need to be educated to do better. That's not going to work. Jesus did this with the Pharisees. We feel he was being harsh sometimes when we read his words. We don't like to think of Jesus as being harsh with people, but he was because he needed to be. When the heart has deceived not only itself, especially with the Pharisees, they were the ruling class. They were the influencers, right? So when, they, the, when their hearts had deceived not only themselves, but the whole system of people, a straightforward, cutting answer is the only thing that might get through. Praise God, Jesus had the guts to do that. You brutal vipers. <laughs> right? You whitewashed tombs. Think they were happy hearing that? Think any of the Corinthians church was happy reading the letter to them from Paul? No, they weren't. They were like, <laughs> Whew, that's hard to hear. I did that last night. Right? The healing wound, right? Jesus' words weren't to hurt and to drive away. They were to help. The healing wound. It is the surgeon cutting out the cancer instead of simply applying a salve to the carcinoma. In Romans 3, 10 through 18, Paul quotes from Psalm 14 in this estimation of human nature. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Poetic language, driving a point. So he speaks in the extreme, but the extreme teaches us. A lot of us don't like the extreme speakers, but we need them. We need them to shock us back to reality. If you think that doesn't describe you, you're simply not being honest with yourself. You haven't, you haven't really gotten to it yet. And that last line is important. Since Proverbs 1 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and despise instruction. 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So how do we begin? We begin with Him. We begin with Him. And we fear God. Fear meaning we respect Him. I, he is holy. He is great. I respect Him. We fear Him not because He's mean, Not because he's vindictive or childish, but because he's dangerous. Remember in, uh, what is it, Uh, if you know what I'm talking about, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the the beaver, right? She said, well, so so he's not dangerous, right? I think it was Lucy who said, he's not dangerous. Oh, no, 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 no. He's good, but he is very dangerous, right? There's something like that. Yeah, Amen. See, I knew somebody would know that quote. I knew it, right? He is dangerous. He's not safe. He holds the keys of of, of the power of life and death in his hands. 
Electricity and fire aren't safe either. They're not mean either, but they're not safe. They're, they're dangerous, right? And when understood and used wisely, they are beneficial to us. And God's the same. Although we don't manipulate God like we do with electricity or fire, we simply submit ourselves totally and fully to him. Totally and fully. Totally and fully. Totally and fully. Not in part. To not care what God thinks about something or life or any of this stuff is incontrovertibly careless and reckless with our lives and with the lives of others. But we live in a world where God is just dismissed. He's flippantly just pushed away. By the way, we are not stupid people holding on to an archaic religion. We have the keys of life. We do. The psalmist didn't brush God away. He listened to his heartfelt understanding of himself and his open need for divine intervention in Psalm 51. It's a little lengthy, but I want to read it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and you are justified when you judge me. I'm adding the me. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than so. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. I need you, right? Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. What happens after all that? Then I will teach transgressors your way. In other words, other people that need to hear it so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are my God, God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. A a broken and contrite heart is exactly what I'm talking about today. A person that understands their need, right? Right? May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, or the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar. So notice he, his acknowledgement of his own sin, even from the very beginning, from birth, that he had no he didn't choose to, to be to walk away from God. He was born into this. He has a need from the very beginning for salvation, and it's only through God that he can find it. And after that, that leads to this contrite heart, this broken heart, this super need for God, which 
turns in to a passion to share that with others. I just spent this weekend as a, at a mini conference about ev- evangelizing our community. A lot of good stuff I heard. Some things I was like, eh. <laughs> I'm very critical. By the way, I watched this guy speak, and he was a really good speaker and a nice guy, and I thought, hey, he bugs me. I'm very critical. And I thought, people are saying that on Sunday mornings about me. Go for the content, not the messenger, right? But it, it, we want to take this to people, but we've gotta, it's got to come out of, of Jesus actually answering our desperate need, or it's just religion. If it's not out of our true need, this evangelism of the other people, if Jesus doesn't really answer my heart, what good is it? Sleep in on Sunday mornings. Go party. That, that's not what we're looking for. Right? Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And we are still sort of trying to solve all our issues by human law instead of allowing God's law to reveal our deep and desperate need for transformation by Jesus. So let's not delude ourselves to think that just by implementing laws, societal problems will go away. As, as Christians, we want, we want the shalom of God to reign in our lives, in our communities. And the only thing that will make that happen is Jesus changing hearts. Evangelism is always the answer. We should always vote our conscience. I don't care if you vote for or against gun control. I couldn't care less what you do with that issue. That's not what we're talking about. We should always vote our conscience, right, on issues. But neither side should delude ourselves that that a soundbite on Facebook or Twitter is going to change the hearts of anybody. Ever notice that both sides have, on any issue, actually have good, strong arguments? That's because we're all still dancing around the worldview model, the outer circles of behavioral, behavior and artifacts. We're still dancing around that stuff. We're not striking at the heart. As Christians, we've not been talking about the central issue, issue which is the depravity of humankind and its utter desperate need for Jesus. We still get caught in the thicket of artifacts and behavior. Politics. What a shame. What a shame. What a waste of time. Who cares what the American government does? I couldn't care less. I couldn't care less if I die following Jesus. I want to be a fool for Christ. A soundbite doesn't afford the room or the nuance to discuss any issue. And meanwhile, we're drawn into arguments which only drive wedges more deeply and keep us from talking about the most important things, and that is our need for Jesus and his ability to change us at the core. And if anybody had evangelized that shooter, maybe, just maybe, it wouldn't have happened. More or less, outward control isn't the answer for any problem, more or less Jesus is. Romans 3, 21 through 24 illustrates, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. And this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 
There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. But we've got to come to Him. For our current context, it might be helpful to replace Jew and Gentile with anything you like, black and white, Hispanic and Asian, black panther and white supremacist, male and female, Republican or Democrat. Liberal and conservative? I hate those labels, by the way. Jesus died for all people. Everybody. Jesus created them all. He died for them all. And we're to love all, and we're to witness to all out of this real deep understanding of it, of the story. No one stays the same after encountering Jesus. No one stays the same after encountering Jesus. Even if they don't accept him, they do not stay the same. His word has power. His word always changes people. Finger wagging this morning. Sorry. In coming to Christ, we have our hearts renewed and we begin this journey of becoming more and more like him, which is exactly what the world needs. And this is why we don't focus all our judgment on outward behavior. Instead, we share Jesus and we nurture people towards true spiritual formation in Christ. Yes, that deals with behavior at some level and at times and all that kind of stuff. And I deal with uh, Rob Schaefer, who's been a Christian for 20 years, differently than I deal with so-and-so who's been a Christian for five minutes. I expect something different from Rob. I don't judge his heart. But I expect I do judge behavior. We can talk about that some other time. Let me pray for us. Man, this is an intense series, isn't it? Amen. Woo! I go home and go to sleep after this one. Seriously, don't walk out of here feeling like, oh my gosh. Walk out of here thinking, wow, I really need to think about this. Where is the Holy Spirit leading you to? What is he leading you to address? My words, I mean, I can be wrong. I can be off. I can be weird. Let the Holy Spirit speak through all of this. Let him convict you. Go back to the word of God. Read, wrestle, be with Jesus. Let him answer these things for you. Don't, Don't just believe me. Go do the work, right? But I'm pretty trustworthy too. (laughs) let me pray for us father we thank you that you allow us and you are safe you are safe to ask these difficult questions with that that when we come into your presence we can hang our hat on the fact that you've got it all under control that you are lord of life and death that you take all this and you work it for your good and your glory and we can we are invited to be a part of that so it's okay for us to come to you with the most hardest of questions and the scariest of questions and the deepest of questions and I imagine that there are people here this morning that have never asked themselves some of these questions or there are people here that this, this morning that are being convicted right now that they have not fully given themselves to you Or they've never even thought about that. I pray that they would. They would simply say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord and Savior of my life. I want to cross over the threshold of knowing you 
and becoming part of the solution instead of part of the problem. Make us peace-filled, loving people. People of grace and of mercy and of holiness and of purity that emulate our God.